Section 7 of the History of England from the Accession of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 15, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section 7. The revolution opened to the Churchills a new and boundless prospect of gain. The whole conduct of their mistress at the great crisis had proved that she had no will, no judgment, no conscience but theirs. To them she had sacrificed affections, prejudices, habits, interests. In obedience to them she had joined in the conspiracy against her father. She had fled from Whitehall in the depth of winter, through ice and mire, to a hackney coach. She had taken refuge in the rebel camp, she had consented to yield her place in the order of secession to the Prince of Orange. They saw with pleasure that she, over whom they possessed such boundless influence, possessed no common influence over others. Scarcely had the revolution been accomplished when many Tories, disliking both the king who had been driven out, and the king who had come in, and doubting whether religion had more to fear from Jesuits or from latitudinarians, showed a strong disposition to rally around Anne. Nature had made her a bigot. Such was the constitution of her mind that, to the religion of her nursery, she could not but adhere, without examination and without doubt, till she was laid in her coffin. In the court of her father she had been deaf to all that could be urged in favour of transubstantiation and auricular confession. In the court of her brother-in-law she was equally deaf to all that could be urged in favour of a general union among Protestants. This slowness and obstinacy made her important— it was a great thing to be the only member of the royal family who regarded Papists and Presbyterians with an impartial aversion. While a large party was disposed to make her an idol, she was regarded by her two artful servants merely as a puppet. They knew that she had it in her power to give serious annoyance to the government, and they determined to use this power in order to extort money, nominally for her, but really for themselves. While Marlborough was commanding the English forces in the Low Countries, the execution of the plan was necessarily left to his wife, and she acted, not as he would doubtless have acted, with prudence and temper, but, as is plain even from her own narrative, with odious violence and insolence. Indeed she had passions to gratify from which he was altogether free. He, though one of the most covetous, was one of the least acrimonious of mankind, but malignity was in her a stronger passion than avarice. She hated easily, she hated heartily, and she hated implacably. Among the objects of her hatred were all who were related to her mistress, either on the paternal or on the maternal side. No person who had a natural interest in the princess could observe without uneasiness the strange infatuation which made her the slave of an imperious and reckless termagant. This the countess well knew. In her view the royal family and the family of Hyde, however they might differ as to other matters, were leagued against her, and she detested them all, James, William and Mary, Clarendon and Rochester. Now was the time to wreak the accumulated spite of years. It was not enough to obtain a great, a regal revenue for Anne. That revenue must be obtained by means which would wound and humble those whom the favourite abhorred. It must not be asked, it must not be accepted, as a mark of fraternal kindness, but demanded in hostile tones, and wrung by force from reluctant hands. No application was made to the king and queen but they learned with astonishment that Lady Marlborough was indefatigable in canvassing the Tory members of Parliament, that a princess's party was forming, 
that the House of Commons would be moved to settle on Her Royal Highness a vast income, independent of the Crown. Mary asked her sister what these proceedings meant. "'I hear,' said Anne, "'that my friends have a mind to make me some settlement.' It is said that the Queen, greatly hurt by an expression which seemed to imply that she and her husband were not among her sister's friends, replied with unwonted sharpness, "'Of what friends do you speak? What friends have you, except the King and me?' The subject was never again mentioned between the sisters. Mary was probably sensible that she had made a mistake in addressing herself to one who was merely a passive instrument in the hands of others. An attempt was made to open a negotiation with the Countess— after some inferior agents had expostulated with her in vain, Shrewsbury waited on her. It might have been expected that his intervention would have been successful, for if the scandalous chronicle of those times could be trusted, he had stood high, too high, in her favour. He was authorised by the King to promise that, if the Princess would desist from soliciting the members of the House of Commons to support her cause, the income of Her Royal Highness should be increased from thirty thousand pounds to fifty thousand. The Countess flatly rejected this offer. The King's word, she had the insolence to hint, was not a sufficient security. "'I am confident,' said Shrewsbury, "'that His Majesty will strictly fulfil his engagements. If he breaks them, I will not serve him an hour longer.' "'That may be very honourable in you,' answered the pertinacious vixen, "'but it will be very poor comfort to the Princess.' Shrewsbury, after vainly attempting to move the servant, was at length admitted to an audience of the mistress.' Anne, in language doubtless dictated by her friend Sarah, told him that the business had gone too far to be stopped, and must be left to the decision of the commons. The truth was that the princess's prompters hoped to obtain from Parliament a much larger sum than was offered by the king. Nothing less than seventy thousand a year would content them. But their cupidity overreached itself. The House of Commons showed a great disposition to gratify Her Royal Highness. But when at length her too eager adherents ventured to name the sum which they wished to grant, the murmurs were loud. Seventy thousand a year, at a time when the necessary expenses of the state were daily increasing, when the receipt of the customs was daily diminishing, when trade was low, when every gentleman, every farmer, was retrenching something from the charge of his table in his cellar. The general opinion was that the sum which the king was understood to be willing to give would be amply sufficient. At last something was conceded on both sides. The princess was forced to content herself with fifty thousand a year, and William agreed that this sum should be settled on her by act of Parliament. She rewarded the services of Lady Marlborough with a pension of a thousand a year, but this was in all probability a very small part of what the Churchills gained by the arrangement. After these transactions the two royal sisters continued during many months to live on terms of civility and even of apparent friendship but Mary, though she seems to have borne no malice to Anne, undoubtedly felt against Lady Marlborough as much resentment as a very gentle heart is capable of feeling. Marlborough had been out of England during a great part of the time which his wife had spent in canvassing among the Tories, and though he had undoubtedly acted in concert with her, had acted as usual with temper and decorum. He therefore continued to receive from William many marks of favour which were unaccompanied by any indication of displeasure. In the debates on the settling of the revenue, the distinction between Whigs and Tories does not appear to have been very clearly marked. In truth, if there was anything about which the two parties were agreed, it was the expediency of granting the customs to the Crown for a time not exceeding four years. But there were other questions which called forth the old animosity in all its strength. The Whigs were now in a minority, but a minority formidable in numbers, 
and more formidable in ability. They carried on the parliamentary war, not less acrimoniously than when they were a majority, but somewhat more artfully. They brought forward several motions, such as no high churchman could well support, yet such as no servant of William and Mary could well oppose. The Tory who voted for these motions would run a great risk of being pointed at as a turncoat by the sturdy cavaliers of his county. The Tory who voted against these motions would run a great risk of being frowned upon at Kensington. It was apparently in pursuance of this policy that the Whigs laid on the table of the House of Lords a bill declaring all the laws passed by the late Parliament to be valid laws. No sooner had this bill been read than the controversy of the preceding spring was renewed. The Whigs were joined on this occasion by almost all those noblemen who were connected with the government. The rigid Tories, with Nottingham at their head, professed themselves willing to enact that every statute passed in 1689 should have the same force that it would have had if it had been passed by a Parliament convoked in a regular manner, but nothing would induce them to acknowledge that an assembly of lords and gentlemen, who had come together without authority from the Great Seal, was constitutionally a Parliament. Few questions seem to have been excited with stronger passions than the question, practically altogether unimportant, whether the bill should or should not be declaratory. Nottingham, always upright and honourable, but a bigot and a formalist, was on this subject singularly obstinate and unreasonable. In one debate he lost his temper, forgot the decorum which in general he strictly observed, and narrowly escaped being committed to the custody of the black rod. After much wrangling, the Whigs carried their point by a majority of seven. Many peers signed a strong protest written by Nottingham. In this protest, the bill, which was indeed open to verbal criticism, was impolitely described as being neither good English nor good sense. The majority passed a resolution that the protest should be expunged, and against this resolution Nottingham and his followers again protested. The king was displeased by the pertinacity of his Secretary of State, so much displeased indeed that Nottingham declared his intention of resigning the seals, but the dispute was soon accommodated. William was too wise not to know the value of an honest man in a dishonest age. The very scrupulosity which made Nottingham a mutineer was a security that he would never be a traitor. The bill went down to the lower house, and it was fully expected that the contest there would be long and fierce, but a single speech settled the question. Summers, with a force and eloquence which surprised even an audience accustomed to hear him with pleasure, exposed the absurdity of the doctrine held by the high Tories. If the convention, it was thus, he argued, was not a parliament, how can we be a parliament? An act of Elizabeth provides that no person shall sit or vote in this house till he has taken the old oath of supremacy. Not one of us has taken that oath. Instead of it, we have all taken the new oath of supremacy, which the late Parliament substituted for the old oath. It is therefore a contradiction to say that the acts of the late Parliament are not now valid, and yet to ask us to enact that they should be held henceforth valid. For either they are already so, or we can never make them so. Which was in truth as unanswerable as that of Euclid, brought the debate to a speedy close. The bill passed the Commons within forty-eight hours after it had been read the first time. This was the only victory won by the Whigs during the whole session. They complained loudly in the lower house of the change which had been made in the military government of the new city of London. The Tories, conscious of their strength and heated by resentment, not only refused to censure what had been done, but determined to express publicly and formally their gratitude to the King, for having brought in so many churchmen and turned out so many schismatics. 
an address of thanks was moved by Clarges, member for Westminster, who was known to be attached to Carmarthen. The alterations which have been made in the city, said Clarges, show that His Majesty has a tender care of us. I hope that he will make similar alterations in every county of the realm. The minority struggled hard. Will you thank the king, they said, for putting the sword into the hands of his most dangerous enemies? Some of those whom he has been advised to entrust with military command have not yet been able to bring themselves to take the oath of allegiance to him. Others were well known, in the evil days, as staunch jurymen, who were sure to find an exclusionist guilty on any evidence or no evidence. Nor did the Whig orators refrain from using these topics on which all factions are eloquent in the hour of distress, and which all factions are but too ready to treat lightly in the hour of prosperity. Let us not, they said, pass a vote which conveys a reflection on a large body of our countrymen, good subjects, good Protestants. The king ought to be the head of his whole people. Let us not make him the head of a party. This was excellent doctrine, but it scarcely became the lips of men who, a few weeks before, had opposed the indemnity bill and voted for the Sacheverell clause. The address was carried by a hundred and eighty-five votes to a hundred and thirty-six. As soon as the numbers had been announced, the minority, smarting from their defeat, brought forward a motion which caused no little embarrassment to the Tory placemen. The oath of allegiance, the Whigs said, was drawn in terms far too lax. It might exclude from public employment a few honest Jacobites, who were generally too dull to be mischievous, but it was altogether inefficient as a means of binding the supple and slippery consciences of cunning priests, who, while affecting to hold Jesuits in abhorrence, were proficients in that immoral casuistry which was the worst part of Jesuitism. Some grave divines had openly said, others had even dared to write, that they had sworn fealty to William in a sense altogether different from that in which they had sworn fealty to James. To James they had plighted the entire faith which a loyal subject owes to a rightful sovereign, but when they promised to bear true allegiance to William, they meant only that they would not, whilst he was able to hang them for rebelling or conspiring against him, run any risk of being hanged. None could wonder that the precepts and example of the malcontent clergy should have corrupted the malcontent laity. When prebendaries and rectors were not ashamed to avow that they had equivocated, in the very act of kissing the New Testament, it was hardly to be expected that attorneys and tax-gatherers would be more scrupulous. The consequence was that every department swarmed with traitors, that men who ate the king's bread, men who were entrusted with the duty of collecting and dispersing his revenues, of victualling his ships, of clothing his soldiers, of making his artillery ready for the field, were in the habit of calling him an usurper, and of drinking to his speedy downfall. Could any government be safe which was hated and betrayed by its own servants? And was not the English government exposed to the dangers which, even if all its servants were true, might well excite serious apprehensions? A disputed secession, war with France, war in Scotland, war in Ireland, was not all this enough without treachery in every arsenal and in every custom-house? There must be an oath drawn in language too precise to be explained away, in language which no Jacobite could repeat without the consciousness that he was perjuring himself. Though the zealots of indefeasible hereditary right had in general no objection to swear allegiance to William, they would probably not choose to abjure James. On such grounds as these, an abjuration bill of extreme severity was brought into the House of Commons. It was proposed to enact that every person who held any office— civil, military, or spiritual, 
should on pain of deprivation solemnly abjure the exiled king, that the oath of abjuration might be tendered by any justice of the peace to any subject of their majesties, and that if it were refused, the recusant should be sent to prison, and should lie there as long as he continued obstinate. The severity of this last provision was generally and most justly blamed. To turn every ignorant meddling magistrate into a state inquisitor, to insist that a plain man, who lived peaceably, who obeyed the laws, who paid his taxes, who had never held, and who did not expect ever to hold any office, and who had never troubled his head about problems of political philosophy, should declare, under the sanction of an oath, a declared opinion on a point about which the most learned doctors of the age had written whole libraries of controversial books, and to send him to rot in jail if he could not bring himself to swear, would surely have been the height of tyranny. The clause which required public functionaries to abjure the deposed king was not open to the same objections. Yet even against this clause some weighty arguments were urged. A man, it was said, who has an honest heart and a sound understanding is sufficiently bound by the present oath. Every such man, when he swears to be faithful and to bear true allegiance to King William, does by necessary implication abjure King James. There may doubtless be among the servants of the state, even among the ministers of the church, some persons who have no sense of honor or religion, and who are ready to forswear themselves for lucre. There may be others who have contradicted the pertinacious habit of quibbling away the most sacred obligations of morality, and who have convinced themselves that they can innocently make, with a mental reservation, a promise which it would be sinful to make without such a reservation. Against these two classes of Jacobites it is true that the present test affords no security. But will the new test, will any test, be more efficacious? Will a person who has no conscience, or a person whose conscience can be set at rest by immoral sophistry, hesitate to repeat any phrase that you can dictate? The former will kiss the book without any scruple at all. The scruples of the latter will be very easily removed. He now swears allegiance to one king with a mental reservation. He will then abjure the other king with a mental reservation. Do not flatter yourselves that the ingenuity of lawgivers will ever devise an oath which the ingenuity of casuists will not evade. What, indeed, is the value of any oath in such a matter? Among the many lessons which the troubles of the last generation have left us, none is more plain than this, that no form of words, however precise, no imprecation, however artful, ever saved or ever will save a government from destruction. Was not the solemn league and covenant burned by the common hangman amidst the huzzas of tens of thousands who had themselves subscribed it? Among the statesmen and warriors who bore the chief part in restoring Charles the Second, how many were there who had not repeatedly abjured him? Nay, is it not well known that some of those persons boastfully affirmed that, if they had not abjured him, they never could have restored him? The debates were sharp, and the issue during a short time seemed doubtful, for some of the Tories who were in office were unwilling to give a vote, which might be thought to indicate that they were lukewarm on the cause of the king they served. William, however, took care to let it be understood that he had no wish to impose a new test on his subjects. A few words from him decided the event of the conflict. The bill was rejected thirty-six hours after it had been brought in by a hundred and ninety-two votes to a hundred and sixty-five. End of section 7